Hello, and welcome back to the Performance University 10 Rules of Business Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Sean Kirby, and with me today, again, I have my father, Mr. Mike Kirby, who is just, you know, tan and good looking and just came back from a a nice boat trip, and um, now our calendar is full for the next four months, and nose to the grindstone. Mr. Kirby, how was your trip? Oh, we had a great time. It's good to get away before tax season. Went with some good friends, clients, and uh, it was 86 degrees with a wind chill of 85 most days, so much better than central Indiana. Not too bad. You brought that good weather with you. And with you today, it looks like on the airplane home, um, you wrote down pretty much a master class of information for our next rule of business. Yeah, the uh, second rule of business, make money, is arguably the most complicated because if you think about it, if it were the easiest of the 10 rules, everybody would be doing it. And it, it certainly isn't easy to make money. Um, as I was on the airplane on the way back, I was just trying to figure out how do you put into words the most complicated part of any economy slash large business slash small business, government, municipal. I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, making money is the most difficult part. Um, and, and you kind of got to break it up into a couple of different categories. There's lots of companies that have huge cash flows. And Amazon's probably one of the best examples. Huge cash flows for a decade before they actually made money. So, you know, we're not going to talk today about the Amazons of the world, but if you think in terms of a small business owner trying to figure out how to do it, um, you know, those same rules apply. And if you remember in episode one, we talked about the first, first rules, you know, stay in business and nothing happens until somebody sale, sell something. And, and that's really what we're going to talk about because it, it, if you, if you sell a product and you lose money on one, you don't make it up in volume. So you've got a lot of decisions to make. Um, first of all, you have to identify what is the product or service and how do I price it? Um, how do I stay ahead of my competition? How do I stay ahead of my um, cost increases, my input costs? And, and then at some point, you got to measure it and say, is this worth doing? Am I, am I getting the return on the investment um, that, that I expect? Because this is probably the most um, complicated thing for people to even track because we get we get so caught up in the day-to-day minutia of of things coming at us and we've got to open the store and we've got to get busy and we've got to get inventory we've got to do all that and a lot of times especially on the accounting side we see clients come in and they go I don't know if I made any money well you probably ought to figure that out pretty quick so I'm, I have just a whole page of things here, and I'll apologize up front if it sounds like it's sort of rambling on and going from topic to topic. I tried to break it down into some simple, transferable things. And I think the first thing is anyone, and when I used to do large group talks, I would say with a show of hands, uh, would everybody raise your hand that likes to make money? And you look around the room, and if they didn't have their hand up, I would jokingly say, well, if you see somebody without their hand up, they will lie to you about other things too. 
because that's the whole point of being in business. Now, don't get me wrong. In this world of passion economy, um, that there are people out there able to reach literally thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people through the internet with a passion. You know, your sister um, and my daughter Erin loves to do art. And she's getting better and better at it. Well, she now has a huge audience. Will she ever make any money at it? I don't know. Most artists never made money, and the people who owned it only made money after they passed away. Mm -hmm. But they, they have millions of people that they can touch today. So rule number two is you got to make money. And the biggest thing is, and I'll go back to a lot of the things I've written down here, are, honestly, are from either the books I've read or people that I've been around in, in classes that you take. And then you try to put all that into some sort of working formula that, that ultimately ends up making money. And there's an old statement that says, everything that I know today that's worth knowing is what I learned after I thought I knew it all. And I think that, if you break that down, it really means this never stops. You're constantly trying to learn, trying to get better. Um, the, the old saying of, you know, if you're, if you're ripe, you're, you're, you're dead. And as long as you're constantly growing uh, and figuring it out and paying attention, which is rule number three, which is know your numbers, you're going to figure it out. So you've got to work hard every single day of, you know, am I making any money? And your numbers will tell you that. And we'll get into that on episode number three. I think the biggest thing is to manage expectations. You know, we've started 18 businesses. And on average, I would say it takes three to five years before we take any money out of those businesses. Because any of the profit is poured back into growing the business. And if you're expecting, and I'm sure there's businesses out there that are huge cash businesses. Um, we just don't happen to have any of those that day one, you just, you made a profit. That's very, very rare. So managing expectations that it takes three to five years before you truly feel comfortable that I'm making money. That doesn't mean you don't get paid, but you're not, you don't have huge windfalls. You're not taking huge dividends out of your S-Corp. You're, you're pouring your money back in because you have to have operating capital, which leads me to cash is king. As long as you've got an accrual of cash, that affords you to get through the bad times because every business has cycles. And I recommend people break down their, their business uh, into quarters. So if you think about first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, you know, in the accounting business, it's pretty level because we get that every month. Uh, we pretty much, yeah, we're growing the business with new clients and so forth. And those fees are pretty steady. But you take the tax business in the next hundred and, well, just say a hundred days, that's where our money is. And then you have to budget it out throughout the rest of the year, uh, not go, you know, spend the money at the end of the season because no more money is coming in on the tax side. So understanding your cash flow is critical. I think the other thing is uh, going back to what product and service. Am I competitive in the marketplace? But then I have a decision to make. Am I going to be a low-cost, high-volume sort of product? Or am I going to be a high-cost product? 
high uh, value product. And if I'm going to be that, it's likely I'm not going to sell as many, but my profit margin is higher. So I think you have to step back, evaluate your business and say, which one am I? Am I transactional? And that, that includes the law of large numbers, which in today's world with the advent of the internet, um, you know, if you could reach millions of people and make 20 cents a product, you know, that's a pretty good profit. But if you're a local business, that's not necessarily the case. Now, what I find with our small business owners is they're blending the two. They may have a storefront, but then they have an online operation as well, which is huge. But an online operation um, takes a lot of time. And in many cases, it's pretty costly. One of our businesses, we spend somewhere around $4,000 a month just in online marketing. If we kick off the national part of our marketing on on that, I mean, we could see numbers of, I think I, I told a banker one time that I want a million dollars a month of credit line. And they sort of looked at me and I said, I, I don't know. Because if you're selling aftermarket auto parts, online and you have 30,000 clicks of people ordering and just using the credit card transaction as an example, that's a three-day wait. Well, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars out waiting for three days to get your money back. So making money can be extraordinarily stressful. Um, At times, it can be painful. Other times, it can be the most rewarding thing on the planet. So I think in the end, uh, studying your, bid- or your, your business and really breaking it down to where I'm going to be a low cost, high, uh, high volume, or am I going to be a high cost and relatively low volume? The ideal scenario is a high cost, high volume. And you look at Apple as an example. I don't even know what an iPhone costs today, but I, th- I think it's a lot more than the iPhone 1 that I bought. Probably in 19, well, in 2008, 2000, yeah. Yeah, 2008. I mean, it was just, but you think about where they've come, I think that's why they do the payment plans now, the two-year payment plans, because nobody's going to spend $2,000 on a phone right up front, at least not high volume. You may find a niche co- a group of people that'll do it. So I'm going to break it down. So when I first started in the insurance business, we had a school, it was called Tiger School. And what it basically did was take a bunch of redneck farm kids like me and say, hey, you've never sold anything. Here's how you begin to sell something. And the first thing you have to do is identify your market. Who are you going to sell to? Where are you going to sell? And how are you going to sell them? The next thing is, what is your approach? And back then, we didn't have the internet. So it was truly one of two things. You were either going to call them on the phone or you were going to go see them face to face. And I think in today's world, it's a blend of phone, internet, face-to-face, and building relationships and so forth. And what what we find in some of our businesses, let's use the hair salon that we own, um, they just have a ton of recurring revenue because everybody wants a haircut about every two to four weeks. So if you did a good job, they're going to come back. So it depends on your business model. If it's a service and that service is, say, tax, it's once a year, for the most part, unless they get a letter. Yeah. Um, it's, it's once a year, and rarely do they leave you. 
They'll refer to you if they had a good experience, uh, which grows your business. And we don't do a lot of marketing anymore in tax because we have a good reputation. And so naturally, um, people are saying, who do you use? And then the business naturally grows. If you have a retail store, then it's a much more, I wouldn't say difficult, but you really have to work at getting people what we call foot traffic. And in the old days, it was about location of your building. What we found in one of our businesses is with the internet and GPS, you don't necessarily need the 30,000 car a day traffic because they'll find you. So that's sort of morphed into, I don't have to pay the high rent for downtown. Uh, We can be off the beaten path. And if you have a good product and good service, they'll find you. So the the marketing side of it has changed dramatically. And I I would be the first to admit that um, having young people who think differently in social media strategies is an invaluable part of growing your business. The, the next part is the presentation. And I, I believe that every single thing that you put out there is marketing. Everything from the look, the sound, the feeling. And there are certain websites that you go to that you can tell they haven't spent a lot of time on. And people will just click right through it. But if you spend the time, spend the money um, to make that first impression something that people... Um, are, are impressed and, and is appealing, they're going to click on it. Now, they may not stay there, but they're at least going to click on it. Um, and then you have to have a close. And the close for us back in the day was called a choice close. You never left an open-end yes or no. It was, would one be good or would two be better? Would Monday night be good or would Tuesday night be better if you were doing an appointment type thing? So, you know, really honing in on those skills of it's not enough to get them to look at it. It's not enough to get them to um, think that's a good idea, but you got to ask for the check. At some point, somebody has to sell it. And I think that goes back to um, the low cost, high volume. It's more than likely a transactional sale, a product that appeals to a lot of people, and then it becomes price. And you got to understand your margin in in that. And in this fast-paced inflationary world, if you don't understand your margins, going back to if you lose money on one, uh, you don't make it up in volume, you're going to be out of business pretty quick. So constantly studying your input cost versus your pricing is, is the key. And that really boils down to the value I create and then the value I can capture from that. And if I'm not capturing enough value, meaning making money, then I've really got to look at the value I'm creating to say that needs to be modified. And if in January of every year, we sit down and we review every single business from a budget perspective, a pricing perspective, our overhead to say, all right, where is the best dollar spent to create more value? And once we've created more value, are we going to capture, in other words, profit from that investment? I go back to the way I ended um, the last one. Uh, It was a very simple thing. 
is that there's no such thing as, as expense in business. There's only an investment with an expected return. What value am I creating and what does it cost me? And what value can I capture from doing that? And it sounds more complicated than it is, but it really boils down to constantly studying what am I doing, how am I doing it, where can I improve it, and does the customer or client have a good enough experience they're, they're willing to write a check for it, or in today's world, swipe the credit card. So I, I think the key to making money, number one, is be patient. Sit down, really understand your business model, what value I'm creating, and is it priced properly? And if you do those things every single day, um, now all of a sudden, profits start to show up. Which then, once the profits show up, I have to decide how much of that is mine personally versus how much do I need to leave in the business to continue that process over and over again. Um, the greatest businesses I've ever seen are the ones that have recurring revenue. And if you look at the models today, almost all of the biggest companies out there, and I'm talking about, <coughs> excuse me, the largest companies in the world, have converted and monetized to recurring revenue. When I ran the insurance companies, we were all about recurring revenue. Monthly premiums paid to the insurance company with a certain amount of claims. So in the life insurance industry, it was fairly simple in the sense that you get lots of people paying premiums for those few people that passed away. And that's where your actuaries come in. Did you hear that virtual intelligence and on-hand VAs actually merge? That's right. I was talking to Michael Cruz and checking out what he has there with his Colombian workers. And I said to him, dude, what's up? You realize you're not a VA, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're a VE. Look it up on ChatGPT. I encourage you to do that too. He's got forward-facing VEs. VEs that can answer the phone and take questions 30 days in. You say yes to Michael. I want what you have. In 30 days, that's what he delivers. I said, Michael, this is unbelievable. We're strong in the front, but we're really strong in the back end. You provide the external VE for us. We provide the internal VE. I looked at him. I said, buddy, let's do this together. Let's, let's do this. And he looked at me and he put out his hand and like a good solid Cuban American, he said, Jason, I'm committed. Let's do it. And that's what we did. We flew to Columbia. We saw his operation and you need to see it too. Give us a little click at virtual Intel. That's with two L's. That's virtual I N T E L L com. Go check us out. See what we're doing. High quality VEs mixed with technology delivered right into your agency. And you don't have to do all the things that you don't like to do, like hiring, firing, requiring, recreating, trying to find processes. Just there's so much stuff. I can't even say it right. That's right. Virtual Intel. Cast certified. Somebody's got to sit down, think through the numbers, and say, our risk is X, our price needs to be Y. And I would say that that also applies to almost every business out there. But the recurring revenue model, where people are constantly paying. I mean, when we first started gyms, I can remember, you know, the, the old model for working out at, a, at somebody else's gym 
was they'd come in and they would sell you, you know, a membership for $1,000. Well, shoot, you can go to Anytime Fitness now for $10 a month. What they bank on is that after January, 90% of the people who are paying 10 bucks a month don't show up anymore. Yeah. Because if everybody showed up, they'd have to have a warehouse that's 50,000 foot square feet to hold them all. Well, they already know statistically 90% of the people aren't going to do that at all. They're going to quit, but they still pay the premium every month because it's only 10 bucks. And they might come back. They'll always have that in the back of their head. Oh, you know, it's like the treadmill in the bedroom that yep. becomes the clothes hanger. So, I, you know, you got to understand that business model. And, you know, if, if you look at that uh, Anytime Fitness, they are low-cost, high-volume. Low-cost, high-volume. So if you really step back and look at your business and go, okay, which, which one am I? And in our small town, you don't see a lot of high-cost, high-volume. We just don't have that type of median income to afford that. Now, if you've got a product that you're selling online, that's totally different because now you're reaching millions of people and it all boils down to marketing. So it, it, it sounds like I'm kind of rambling here, but at the same time, the, the business model that you have has to be constantly reviewed to say, all right, if this product is that good for my small community, is there a way for me to launch this nationally? Because the internet changed everything. Um, it's hard to do on the tax side, except for if you notice H&R Block and um, Liberty and, and TurboTax, they really don't care if you sit down with anybody. They want you to do it yourself and pay them for the software. We are different because we have a personal service that literally either you or myself will sit down with 900 people in the next 75 days. They'll ask questions. We'll answer those questions. We'll ask questions. We'll give them things to think about. It's a personal relationship that is a much different experience than the TurboTax or the H&R Block. Their expectations are much different. If they get a letter from the IRS, they're bringing it to us. Where if they get a letter from the IRS and they did it on TurboTax, we generally get them as a client because it scares the crap out of them. Because they go, I know I did this wrong. I don't want to do it again. So it's a fascinating thing in today's world of, we'll call it just broad marketing. Um, and it's a delicate balance between transactional product and quality service. The ideal scenario is you've got a quality product and a quality service. So it's all dependent upon your business model. And I think those little things make a huge difference. Um, you know, we have the client who has very specific skills and is paid handsomely with very little overhead. The, pa the, the new passion economy allows people today to do things that even a decade ago they would never dream of um for instance you know i heard about a little kid in in carmel indiana that makes three four five million dollars a year because his parents put him on a video playing with games 
And little kids love to watch this other kid play games. And then he gets sponsored by these, these toy companies to play with their toys. I mean, it's like the movie Big. He just sits in a room and plays with toys and cashes in. Who would have thought of that? You know, I, I just am always amazed every tax season when somebody walks in with a new business. Picnics. 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 We had somebody come in and they do glamorous, yeah. and I think she called it bougie picnics. And yeah. I was like, you do what? Yeah. And they set up picnics. picnics. Yeah, she was on Channel 8 and 59 this week. Is that right? Yeah. I, I just was blown away by that concept. And more as a business guy going, man, I mean, if there is a market out there, and let's face it, the average American has become accustomed to not doing much by them, for themselves, um, and you can fill that niche. If you're priced correctly, you're in business. Totes. Oh, take your totes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the, 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 the biggest thing is, and, and this is why budgets are so important, you've got to understand your input costs, your rent, insurance, your taxes. One of the biggest things we see is people with startups think that dollar is theirs. And unfortunately, Uncle Sam says, if you make a dollar, you have to pay us some of it. And so you got to understand the tax side of it. You don't necessarily have to understand it to the detail that we do, but you understand part of it is, is now the government's. And so I think if you're going to have the first rule, stay in business, second rule, make money, you better understand the money side in order to stay in business. Um, in in here, we, we, we often say, in fact, Sean did a, a podcast not long ago, the three ways you make money. There's three ways you make money. One is man at work, and this isn't sexist. It's just the way I learned it. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I can, in the old days, you know, you could start a weld shop, I could work 24 hours, seven days a week, be by myself. All that money was mine other than the cost that, that I had to, to do the work. The second way you make money is minute work. That is a transferable system where other people are working for you and they're out making money for you. They're getting paid to do it, um, but they didn't take the risk. So if they didn't take the risk and I introduced them to this opportunity, I deserve part of that sale. Uh, and then finally, your money has to be at work for you. And, you know, I'm sure people out there are going, why do you have 18 businesses, blah, blah, blah. Well, we diversified our income. But we didn't get into things um, that didn't complement everything else we were doing. And so as an example, we first started out on the financial side where we were gathering assets, uh, doing the protection side of life insurance, long-term care, that kind of stuff. Well, it only made sense that we added property casualty to that. And property casualty is recurring revenue. Financial is recurring revenue. And then we added tax and accounting and then payroll, things that complemented the other things that we did. We, we came into those with a fundamental understanding. There are certain things that people need to have. And when you fill the need to have, it gives you the opportunity to talk about the things that are nice to have. And that, to me, really was the launching pad for everything else we do. We ended up in the coin-operated laundry business. We didn't 
I didn't even think people used laundromats anymore. I hadn't used one since college. And what I discovered, we were really looking for the real estate, is that by buying the laundromat, it paid for the, the real estate. Have we made money in the laundromat? No. <laughs> no. And it's, it's a comical thing because the, the laundromat simply came with the building. Have we made investments in it? Absolutely. We did that because over time you realize that's an invaluable service to a small community, um, and lots of people use it. I mean, hundreds of people a week use our laundromats. And by doing that, that afforded us the opportunity to have two buildings because it all came as one, and we didn't pay rent for, well, we haven't paid rent, technically rent. On the tax side, we do pay rent. But technically, we haven't had to pay anything for the building because the laundromat paid for it. And I'm only using our examples because it's, I think, a, a, a good model to say, okay, if recurring revenue, and some people call it mailbox money, is the ultimate goal, then you've got to find ways to create revenue every week that didn't necessarily cost me any money. And so I would, I would challenge all the small business owners to go, okay, this one's going pretty well. What else can I add to it? And it may be I'm a storefront that doesn't have an internet operation. What can I invest in in 2023 that's going to diversify my income streams? Because not everything has a good year. And you've got to have some diversified income that allows you to weather the storm in business A and business B is taking off. So that goes back to cash is king. Now, whether you're doing that through an operating line of credit or you're doing that because you accrued the money yourself, either way, you've got to have capital to pour back into your business. An example would be when it, we have a fundamental philosophy in here. When it costs us not to do something, we better do it. Now, whether that's a piece of equipment, whether that's a new person because we're other people are overworked, when it costs me not to, to, to do it, I better spend the money. And if you take it that way, there's the need to have and the nice to have. We rarely do nice to haves. We rarely do nice to haves for one reason. We'd rather diversify into another business. And if you're going to take the nice to haves and have a super plush office because that's part of the environment, that's still the investment. That's not an expense because that's the environment you're trying to do. Um, or create. So, you know, really thinking through, and I'm, I'm going to close with the last one, you got to have a strategy. And we always hear corporate strategy. What's your corporate strategy? Well, in here, strategy is pretty simple. And that is each business has to find a way to take a client, turn them into a two-dimensional client, and ultimately a three-dimensional client. What do I mean by that? is they're doing business, they're coming to us for maybe one service, but we want to make sure they understand that we do all these other services. And when you are, because they're doing that business somewhere. So if you come to us as a tax client, we want you as an insurance client. We ultimately want you as a financial client. And that's a slow process. I would have thought that would have been much quicker than it was. 
we learned that it's not, and it's truly planting acorns. You may talk to somebody in 2019 who remembered that you do financial advising, and then all of a sudden, this year at tax time, they'll go, hey, I'm getting ready to retire. I need to move my 401k. But it's taken three, four, five years to do that. Um, So you constantly have to make sure that your clients know everything you do. You also have to listen to your clients because they may bring you the best ideas that you hadn't thought about. And what I mean by that is um, we, we kind of shied away from payroll because you don't make any money at payroll. And then all of a sudden our accounting clients are going, well, we're doing ADT or we're ADP, ADP, paycheck, something yeah, like that. paycheck, somebody like that. And we went, you know, it's costing us not to do this. And going back to the three-dimensional client, they may come in as a payroll client, which we know the margins are super thin. If not, you lose money. But we turn them into an accounting client, we turn them into a tax client, and you get them as an insurance client. So sometimes, not that we have lost leaders, but while you're growing this business that isn't necessarily making money, it's adding value to the other parts of your business that are making money. So I think that, you know, the making money part, as I started with, is the most complicated. And it's one that it, it's probably the one that keeps you up the most at night because it constantly changes. And if you're not ahead of it and you're behind it, rule number one is going to come right at you. You won't be in business. So I would, I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this, review your business plan. What is your strategy? How can I diversify my income streams? Am I a low-cost provider with high volume. And if I'm not getting the volume, how do I get the volume? And I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the internet is an amazing, amazing marketing tool. Um, if I'm a high, uh, pr- high value product, how do I increase my production? Because uh, use an artist as an example, they may have hours upon hours into a, a painting and it's only them. They make good money on it. But if you're only producing one a month, you're kind of limited on what your your abilities are. And I don't pretend to understand the art world, but you got to figure that out. You got to figure out how can I become a high value product and also a high volume product. Um, and and I think that you know in in the end, by in most of small businesses run it by how much is the balance of my checkbook. I mean, that's the honest truth. If I've got the money, I'll, I'll pay it. Um, you you got to figure out how to get your income to be as level as possible. And recurring revenues are probably the best because you know each month I've got at least this coming in. So if you can turn your transactional business into a recurring revenue business, I'd say you want to spend some time on that one. I, I don't pretend to have all the answers to that. Uh, but I also don't know what you do. So, but but I encourage you to really think through, how do I turn this into a recurring revenue business? The other thing is in, in The Passion Economy, there's a book um, called The Passion Economy. And it, it challenges every small business owner to do this. And it's not I'm suggesting you do this, but it says, what if I doubled my cost today? 
what if I doubled the cost of everything that I do today? What would happen? What an interesting challenge. And you go, well, I'd probably lose about half my customers. I'd make the same amount of money, but I'd lose about half my customers. Half as much work. It is, but after we've all poured our hearts into things for 20 years, you've got relationships out there. So I'm not suggesting you do it, but you really have to understand, am I getting paid for the value that I've created? Am I capturing my ultimate value on the other side? And if I'm not, how do I either gradually or how do I have that conversation? Because I think the biggest thing is what the customer doesn't realize is sometimes we're doing a lot more for them than they realize. We're doing a lot more value than they could get anywhere else and we don't get paid for it. And so for us internally, we challenge ourselves constantly. And I go back to the presentation. Are we, are we really telling the client all the things we're doing for them? Are we really in a transferable way able to articulate all the things we do for them to justify the increased value that we need to capture? And we're still working on that. I mean, we're, we're constantly working on it because if you think about business, the very first year you're in survival stage. I just need to survive. And I would say maybe that lasts two or three years, depending upon the economy. And ultimately, you have to be able to articulate the value that you create for them. And if you're not creating value, I would challenge you to say, you know, you're on a slippery slope because eventually they'll figure it out. So you really have to understand and be able to articulate very clearly to any client at any time, here's the values we create. Now, price becomes a part of that because you don't want to make it so unaffordable that the average person, especially in a small community, can't do business with you. That's just, that's not going to work. We don't want to be that. We're a service organization, so we want to make sure we serve the community and it's priced fairly. We get compensated and we make money. So I would suggest that any small business owner out there really sit down with a pad of paper. What is the value I create? What other values could I give the client maybe at no or very little cost, that increases the capture value for my organization. And if we do that on a regular basis, you're going to find you're going to make money. You're going to be satisfied. The client's going to be satisfied. You're going to attract new clients that maybe you didn't dream you could have because of the value you add. And then you're going to capture the value you deserve. So, um, I would just simply put it back to all of us small business owners that um, in the end, your efforts have to be put forth on providing the best product you possibly can, the best service you possibly can, and creating an environment where you're capturing the most money you can for that service. That may require you go back to school, may require you to make a new investment in some new machine. But if you think in terms of diversifying my income and capturing that value, um, I think you're going to be just fine. So 
I I would just wish everybody the the best of luck out there and never quit. Never quit. And that's how you make money. <laughs>